think I can say for all of us that I'm really enjoying the new music that you're bringing to us, just like that last song right there. And I want to say good morning to all of you, church. How are y'all this morning? Good. You know, it's great to be with you filling in for Doug. It's always healthy when you get a little bit of time off um, and uh, get to take time with your family. Um, too bad it's been 110 degree temperatures this last week, but hey, uh, glad he got a chance to, to get out of town and, and have a little bit of respite there. And as Chris mentioned, um, we are going to continue in our series on the half-truths. And um, the topic I'm going to talk about today may be a little bit sensitive for some or maybe even all of us um, on the topic of money. Um, so if you would this morning, uh, before we step into scripture, uh, would you please join me in prayer? Uh, dear Heavenly Father, I just uh, thank you for uh, this morning that we have to worship you. Um, Lord, I uh, pray for all those who aren't able to be here this morning, who are away, either on vacation or home or, or somewhere else, and uh, that you would uh, continue to be with them. And uh, I just thank you for each person in this room. Lord, I pray that you would uh, speak through me this morning and uh, that you would uh, bless this sermon as I preach it. Uh, Lord, we love you, and it's through your son's name we pray. Amen. So today's half-true statement we're going to discuss, I'm sure, is one that we are all familiar with, and probably a lot of us have even said it multiple times over and over again throughout our lives, and that is, money is the root of all evil. Did you know that there are over 2,000 references to money in Scripture? It was an important topic when Scripture was written and remains an important topic today. And just as there are over 2,000 references to money in Scripture, there are probably over 2,000 sayings in our culture today that in some way reference money. You know, we hear a lot of times, money makes the world go round. Cash is king. Money can't buy happiness. A penny saved is a penny earned, and a day late and a dollar short. Those are all examples of the many sayings we use in our culture today when talking about money. Because it's something virtually all of us have in common. We share it. You know, in today's modern world economy, just about everything that involves commodities means using money as a means to acquire or divest of resources. I deal in this world daily. It's, it's kind of funny that as uh, Kaufman's economic developer, I'm the one preaching on this topic this morning because where the prosperity of a region is driven by financial investments of businesses and developers in a community, as well as that community's spending power to patronize those businesses, is something that I work around every single day in my job. But while many of us may take the view that money is the root of all evil, there are a few words missing when compared to scripture that change the way we talk about money in our lives. And those three words are for the love. For the verse we're going to talk about today specifies that for the love of money is the root of all evil. So back in 1974, uh, long before I was born, uh, there was a song that some of you may remember from the R&B group, The OJs, called the love, For the Love of Money. The chorus of the song is that popular chorus that we all would recognize today where it goes, money, 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 money. The song was a chart chopper ranking number nine on the U.S. Billboard's Hot 100, 
And 30 years later, the song was revived when it was chosen as a theme song for Donald Trump's business reality TV show known as The Apprentice. However, when it was used as The Apprentice theme song, it was cut down just to those several words repeated over and over again of money within that chorus. And for those of us that may know the song from when it was used as this theme song and, or hear it today while we're preoccupied doing other things than paying attention to what the lyrics are saying, we may think it's a song about greed. However, if you listen a little bit closer to the lyrics, you'll notice it's not about how great money is, but rather how the love of money can corrupt and ruin your life. The OJs wrote this song, having read the passage we're going to talk about today, and wrote basically a modern-day prophetic warning about the love of money. Just look at one of the, uh, several of the verses to this song up here. Is the slide for it? There we go. For the love of money, people will lie. They will cheat. For the love of money, people don't care who they hurt or beat. For the love of money, a woman will sell her precious body. For a small piece of paper, it carries a lot of weight. Call it lean, mean, mean, green. I bet y'all didn't think you'd ever hear a 1970s funk song being referenced in church one day. <laughs> it's what you can get away with when you're filling in. Uh, <laughs> I encourage you when you get home, pull up the song on YouTube, share it with your family, with your kids, um, because the words really do carry tremendous weight uh, that when one is consumed with loving money, it can lead to damaging life decisions. You know, issues like human trafficking, drugs, prostitution, even political power and gambling and alcohol addictions. Many times you find the root of that that enables those behaviors, which is money. And as we talk about the love of money this morning, I don't want you to take this message in the wrong way. It's good to have financial and career goals or dreams, and it's okay to spend money on your needs and occasional wants, and it's good to have savings for certain things. However, we need to be aware that when used excessively for certain purposes, it can consume us or even damage our lives. And it's this type of obsession that leads us to our text this morning. So with that, if you would, uh, please turn in your Bibles with me to 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 6. 1 Timothy 6, verse 6. It says, but godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. But you, man of God, flee from all this and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life of which you are called when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses." In the sight of God who gives life to everything and of Christ Jesus who while testifying before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, 
I charge you to keep this command without spot or blame until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which God will bring about in his own time. God, the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see, to him be honor and might forever and ever. Amen. So to best understand this text, let's unpack a little bit as to what's going on in 1 Timothy. Paul is writing from afar to Timothy, a mentee of his and a close friend in ministry. And Timothy is in the city of Ephesus, and uh, Ephesus was a very vibrant city at this point in time. Uh, There are about 250,000 people in that community. It was a commerce and cultural hub. It was a port city. Um, It was very wealthy and prosperous. Uh, You know, if we had something that we could compare it to today, I would say it was probably like the Frisco of the eastern Mediterranean region. Uh, And while we don't know what correspondence Timothy had with Paul before this letter was written, we can pick up themes from reading both this chapter and the rest of the letter that Paul is writing Timothy guidelines for Christian living. And more specifically, Timothy's role in leading God's people and the church. Because early in the letter, there's actually a brief few verses about women showing up for worship dressed very elaborately with gold and pearls and expensive clothing. Then later, there's a section devoted to the importance of care of widows by the church for those that are vulnerable and unable to take care of themselves. So it seems these recurring themes of financial resources and the way these Christians may have conducted themselves signals a potential degree of maybe materialism or something that was going on among some of the people. So overall, Paul's letter paints a picture of how his context of ministry is to be formed. And with chapter 6 being the end of that letter, there's considerable time spent in this part discussing contentment, faith, guarding our hearts, and living in a way that's different than how most people would live. And Paul's message in verse 10 about the love of money sits in the dead center of that chapter where he builds up to discussing this topic, then fleshing out how we as Christians approach the issue of money and physical resources. Because money is a means to an end that drives an economy. Money is neither moral nor immoral. Every single one of our jobs and industries, like I said earlier, somehow involves money. You can take a $20 bill and spend it on something that supports the kingdom of God. You can use it to purchase food, or you could use it to feed an addiction. And for decades, the correlation of money and happiness has been studied by psychologists because the notion has been that as one acquires more wealth, that should naturally mean it enhances one levels of happiness. However, this correlation has been debunked over and over again, yet there's still this cultural obsession with loving the accumulation of money because we can spend more of it on things we want. And while there are so many great examples of seeing how money has impacted things for the better, how many of us have seen money destroy someone's life because they got tied up in the amount they had accumulated or had and it created an addiction that ruined their life? And that's what this text is warning us. You know, it's interesting because as you read and study these verses, the translation of the phrase, the love of money from the New Testament Greek is just one singular word. Philarguria is the one word that translates into the phrase, the love of money. Paul doesn't use the word agape or phileo to, just, to say the word love in there. 
This word means an entire phrase, and that word is only used about five times throughout our New Testament. Three times by Paul in First and Second Timothy, once in Hebrews, and once in the Gospel of Luke. And it's not typically ever used in a positive way. It's always used as a warning or a criticism. It's used as an instruction earlier in 1 Timothy regarding qualifications for elders, a warning for the way some may behave toward the end times and, it, uh, and to describe teachers of the law. There are a lot of different ways uh, and, and examples in those five scriptures of how, it's, how it gets used. But some, even if when you look it up in, in, a, uh, in, a, in a book, you can see that the definition sometimes of love of money when it comes to translation goes from the love of money to covetousness. And for many of us in here today, hearing about the love of money, we may think we've successfully avoided the message of this text and that we've gotten a free pass because, you know, we, we don't love money. We're, we're okay. We, we give and we do everything for help other people. But however, when you read this text from the interpretation of for covetousness is the root of all kinds of evil, then that takes a completely different meaning for us. And to a degree, maybe that's the message that we need to take home with us today in 21st century America, where we live in one of the wealthiest countries in the entire world. We see others that drive a nicer car or live in this bigger house, eat at nicer restaurants or take nicer vacations. And if we don't watch our hearts, we can move from a position of appreciating what some people have to a position of having this strong desire to keep up with others and obsessively wanting something because you think it'll bring you lasting joy. And while I don't want you to hear me say this morning that having any of these things is bad, I think it's important for each of us to examine our hearts because I know it happens to me without even realizing it. Because advertising, marketing, Comparing ourselves to others can quickly lead to coveting other people's stuff or physical wealth, which when taken excessively can lead to a life filled with grief, as Paul describes. So in addition to watching our motives when it comes to money, what Paul is saying here in 1 Timothy is that it's also the posture we take with it as well. And where Paul says the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, he fleshes this statement out later in the chapter. So turn back in your Bibles with me. We're going to start in chapter 6, verse 17. It says, Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but, their, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to your care. Turn away from godless chatter and the opposing ideas of what is falsely called knowledge which some have professed and in so doing have departed from the faith. Grace be with you all. So while the love of money may be a root to evil, placing our hope in God is the root of what leads to richness in our lives. Because as we just read, wealth can be uncertain. And many of us in this room have experienced that uncertainty. You may be blessed with riches today only to have it be erased tomorrow. 
So what we Christians need to expect when we receive money, whether it's in our paychecks or in our inheritance or a gift from someone, is that we have a responsibility to steward this money because it is God's money and not our money. And for us, thinking about it in that way, it changes the dynamic, does it not? Because that's not the way the world looks at having monetary resources. But the world is also watching how us Christians use our money. And if we as the church are going to be this counterculture of community of people, shouldn't we think about and use our money be an integral part of how we live our lives? Because there are a lot of both good and bad examples among Christian circles of how this occurs. I mean, all you need to do is turn on the news. Because how many times have we seen in the news about a televangelist that falls under federal investigation for tax evasion because they use donor money for personal gain? Or how many times on the opposite end have we witnessed churches where they've used their members' resources to free up medical debt for people or support helpless families in war-torn countries like Ukraine? Fellow Christians, people are watching. The world is watching. And while the good deeds we do for others are not always to be shown publicly, Paul's message to Timothy is that God's people use their financial resources to take care of one another, to do good deeds, and to be generous. For the money we have been entrusted with is God's money that we have the responsibility to steward appropriately. So as we read in verse 19, we hear this similar language to where we store our treasures, which some of us would be reminded of the words of Jesus in the Gospels on that subject. And in a few other areas of 1 Timothy, we hear references and instruction or stories that might harken back to the Gospels and maybe specifically more so of the Gospel of Luke. Um, we know that Paul and Luke were actually really close friends, so it makes sense that there might be a little bit of overlap between these two texts. And while we dwell on this text today, I'm reminded of two stories from Luke's gospel that are somewhat different yet highlight great examples of how our posture toward money can either grow us or destroy us. You know, you think about the prodigal son. When a young man can't wait and instead asks his father for his share of the inheritance and turns around leaving home to indulge himself in his newfound riches only to blow it all on wasteful things that leave him working among the pigs and later realize that his plan nearly destroyed his life. In essence, when he actually approaches his father asking for his share of the inheritance up front, at this time in their culture, that was basically telling him and conveying to him that he would prefer his father be dead than alive because the inheritance wasn't typically given to someone before their father passed away. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, and it was this unhealthy level of love and obsession that caused the son to give up any kind of care for his family to leave and end up nearly destroying his future. You also think about the story of the widow's might. When a widow drops the only two coins that she has to survive into a temple offering, and too many times we may only focus on the part of the story where she puts her money into the offering and we admire the generosity she had. And while it's important to celebrate the widow's openness and giving, if you look a few verses before that story begins, Jesus warns of the teachers of the law who devour widows' houses. 
And it's just a few chapters earlier in Luke where that same Greek word phulargeria is used to describe the love of money among the Pharisees. So was the widow giving her last two coins to live on because the teachers of the law were instructing her to do this because of their love of money? Was she truly giving out of generosity? I mean, I think either way, her openness to give of her last two coins is something that we can all admire. But these two stories provide some similar and some very different lessons and outcomes on the teaching of money. But regardless, both teach that we are stewards of the financial resources that God has given us. And how we steward this money shines a light on our motives. We like the prodigal son taking money and using on frivolous things only to realize later that our motives were wrong. Are we the widow giving up everything we have out of an abundance of generosity? Or are we the teachers of the law taking someone's resources for personal gain? Because as stewards of the resources we've been given, we are to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be willing to share with generosity. But Paul isn't just writing this to instruct us on some sort of religious dogma or to create some instruction manual so that if we follow each rule, we'll somehow earn our salvation. No, he's writing this because, as he says, it's the kind of living that gives life. The kind of living that gives life. Because just how many of you have ever been going through a financially difficult time and there was someone or maybe multiple people that came to your aid, did they just provide monetary resources or did they provide more than that? My guess is that these people also probably provided you with spiritual support, provided you with friendship, they provided you with hospitality. And it's that level of deep relationship that brings life in each one of us. And having the opportunity when the tables turn and you are the one that has the opportunity to bless someone going through hard times brings life to you as well. Because just think of what would happen if every one of us hoarded what we had made because money or things were the only driving factor that all of us had. Now, this church building wouldn't exist. The missionaries like we had here last week uh, spreading the gospel wouldn't have any support. There would be no relationships in this room right now. And there'd probably be more poverty, hunger, or homelessness in the community. And because we, as God's people, are stewards of the money we are blessed with, we have a responsibility to bring that same life to others as well. With committing ourselves to the mission of God and to the work of the church, we sign up for a different way of living. We may not have as much money left over to use for ourselves each month that could go to a bigger mortgage or a nicer vacation or different kinds of merchandise that we otherwise could have. And I think it's good for each one of us to be reminded that while most of us live comfortably, we can acknowledge as a community that we purposefully live on a little less because we are bringing life to others in this broken world that is in such desperate need of God's touch. And God uses each one of us to take part in touching people's lives because of the ways he has blessed us. Because if you think of how our body language reflects this in today's culture, if you see someone with clenched hands, all of us would interpret that as holding on to something, not wanting to let anything go. Some may even think of it as resisting change or even some level of anxiety someone might have. But when you see someone with open hands, we would interpret that as being friendly, trustworthy, 
willing to help. We see people with open hands in worship as a sign of surrender to the lordship of Jesus. And it's when we have these open, this open hands approach that we see the opportunities for blessing others, having the willingness to asking for help when we need it and surrendering ourselves and our assets to being used not only for ourselves, but for the opportunities where the Lord may lead us. And speaking of opportunities, I would be remiss if I didn't bring up the tremendous opportunity that those of you who are parents and grandparents have in teaching your kids, starting at a young age, the importance of investing a part of your resources in the work of God. And I'm so glad, just as we saw this morning with, with our kids up front, and each week how they participate in an uh, offering that helps support work for the freeing of children from slavery in Africa, which is a cause that truly brings life to those otherwise helpless. But in your daily instructions with your children, it's healthy to discuss money with them and how you commit certain resources to kingdom work. Instilling in them that the money you have or that they may receive from you is God's money and knowing the responsibility each one of us have and shepherding that money in ways that honor him and bring life to others will help create adults in the future that will continue this legacy of generosity. Because using the resources we've been given not only helps others, but it brings heaven to earth. And we are the ones that get to participate and showcase to the world what it means to use our resources to bring life to others. It's a glimpse into God's economy, one where people are the center and where those in need are lifted up. So while society may say money is the root of all evil, which may have a degree of merit to it, it's the all-consuming love of money which can lead to living in a way that just that destroys us or causes us to harvest jealousy over other people's possessions that is the root of evil. So many of you have probably seen the reality TV show, Undercover Boss, where the CEO of a major company takes on an alias and goes undercover to one of his or her business locations, many of which are typically retail or construction or some other type of related business. They may pose as a store clerk and interact with everyone from the local manager down to the customer service workers or people out in the field. And as this CEO takes on their alias, they learn things on the local job that their employees face every day. Most of the time, they learn a lot about themselves, too, and just how hard some of those jobs can sometimes be. Sometimes they realize it's difficult. Beyond learning the various jobs their employers have, the CEO builds those relationships with those employees, learning of their life challenges, goals, and job performance. And as the show ends, the CEO brings these employees into a room and shares his or her real identity with them, taking the information they learn about that employee as they're working undercover and weave it into things that they provide for them, whether it's a promotion, educational assistance, financial assistance for their family or life goals. And as you watch how these employees react to the news they receive from the CEO, they're smiling, they're crying, they're laughing. They enter a whole new trajectory in their life. And whether it's as simple as helping them get a college degree or put them through a management training program or as complex as paying off medical bills, it shows just how much life it brings to those employees. That's what each one of us are called to do. We know that life isn't about accumulating as much stuff as you can or competing with your friends for the nicest things. 
It's about using the resources we've been blessed with to bless others and having open hands to respond when there is need. So may we examine our hearts this morning as we leave from here to not be lovers of money or covet after things others may have, but to seek out ways we can bring life to others through both the talents and the resources that God has given us. Would you pray with me? Holy Father, we thank you for being a God that breathes life into all things. And we thank you for being a God that uses all of us to bring joyful life to others. We pray this morning that you would give us open hands, willing to use the resources you've given us to bless others. We pray that you would help us examine our hearts and forgive us whenever we covet other people's riches. And in all, we pray, Lord, that this church and each one of us may be a reflection of your radical generosity, being responsible stewards of the blessings you have bestowed upon us. It's in all these things and through your son's name that we pray. Amen.